we this evening and, and over the weeks as we progress towards Easter are considering we're considering the words of Jesus to us. All of them are incredibly profound, as you know. But we're considering some particular words, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Seven last sayings, statements that Jesus spoke, some brief, some longer, some in conversation, some seemingly just you know, offered out there into the, the agony of the moment. But Jesus spoke these things. And we're framing them um, as I was prompted. Um, there's a book by the name of Seven Mile Miracle. And it places these seven last sayings of Jesus in the context of a seven mile walk. And that walk was Jesus immediately after he'd risen from the grave. He journeyed. Uh, not with famous people, not with those who, who were kind of even celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He journeyed with people who were confused. Uh, does anybody want to admit on a Sunday evening that sometimes they get confused? I, I know I do. And journey, Jesus journeyed with two of his disciples. People, you know, they had been journeying with Jesus. They meant well. They committed themselves in one way or another. Yet at the point of Jesus' death and then as the stories of his resurrection start to come out, but they're so totally confused. They're journeying away, away from, away from Jerusalem towards a town named Emmaus. And on that seven-mile journey, they're journeying perhaps away from their hopes and their dreams, away from what they'd imagined could be. But Jesus, he comes and he walks alongside them and he opens up the scripture and again, he speaks to them. And we can see how the words of Jesus, not only do they draw us closer to the foot of the cross, they draw us close to see Jesus for who he is, to have our lives utterly and completely transformed by the incredible miracle of his death. But they enable us then to journey with Jesus from the point of his resurrection. So I don't know whether you know, but Jesus is alive. Are you aware of this tonight? You know, to later on we're going to come and we're going to break bread and drink a cup that speak to us of his death. But Jesus is also alive. And so we get to celebrate this. We get to celebrate this journey with Jesus, walking with him until he comes again. And so last week we, we heard the words of Jesus to us, a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. An incredibly generous statement. For in terms of the activity, the acts of violence and, uh, and, and unrighteousness that were being thrown at, hurled at, brutalizing Jesus, people knew exactly what they were doing. The truth of the matter is they had no idea who Jesus was. They'd removed themselves, separated themselves from God himself, the author of life. And as Jesus was there, hoisted up on that tree, he handed down to them exactly what they needed, forgiveness. Even though they were rejecting him in that moment. And tonight, we come to the, the next thing that Jesus had to say. And in Luke 23 and verse 43, Jesus says something really profound. And he says it to one particular character in this instance, a guy who was being crucified right alongside him. And Jesus says to this man, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a word that Jesus speaks to this man and it's a word of salvation. 
and we can perhaps picture the scene. For Jesus was crucified, the Bible teaches us, with two other criminals alongside him. People who had committed crimes, had been tried for them and found guilty. And presumably their crimes were so heinous, so terrible, that the punishment would be this death penalty. This horrendous means of carrying out the death penalty that the Romans had adopted and adapted and perfected to what it was. Jesus is there in amongst these two, a man who'd been wrongly accused and wrongly convicted and yet silently, without fight, went to his cross. And as the scene unfolds, Jesus, he's been abused by so many people, people who are mocking him and and they're decrying him and, and they kind of always keep on coming back to this one point. They say, if you are who you say you are, then get yourself down from that cross, save yourself, prove it to us, maybe then we'll believe. It's such a tragic and horrendous thing for them to say to Jesus because Jesus could do anything in that moment, but that was the one thing that he couldn't do. Not if he was to fulfill his mission. Not if he was to bring salvation. Not if he was to bring grace. Not if he was to bring hope. Not if he was to come and help you and me. That was the one thing Jesus couldn't do. He could save us, but only if he allowed himself to die. If he was to save himself, then you and I would be hopeless and helpless. And so they hurled this at him over and over and over again. And one of those um, criminals alongside him joins in this refrain. And in the agony of the moment, no doubt, but in the brokenness and perhaps the blackness of his heart, he throws this at Jesus as well. And he says, if you are who you say you are, sort it out. But the other criminal, who clearly had not lived a good life and was coming to a very bad end. Something different happens within him. When he sees this Jesus, and no doubt he'd heard something of the story of Jesus and seen a little of how it was unfolding. And I don't know whether when they went up to that hill to be crucified, whether he saw Jesus bringing his cross and thought, really? I know I should be here. I know that what I've done is wrong, but... I've heard about this Jesus. Isn't this the Jesus who feeds the hungry and heals the blind and takes care of the vulnerable? Isn't this that Jesus that I saw once upon a time with kids playing all around him and jumping on his lap? Isn't this the Jesus who spoke such powerful and profound words, whose words seemed even like they brought life? And Maybe he sees this Jesus coming up to be crucified with him and something starts to happen in his heart. And maybe even in that moment, the grace of God and his spirit comes upon him and prompts him to, to, to see in a different way. See, there were four people who could have been scheduled to be killed on that day. Uh, you know, we don't know the names of these two either side of Jesus. We know the name of one other, Barabbas. And he was a murderer, it seems, and part of some rebel uprising. He'd got away. He'd been set free in some political power play. And Jesus was the one who was sent to die between two criminals. And this man looking at this Jesus, thinking, how could this be? Turns to the other criminal and with whatever strength he could muster, tells him, no, you're wrong. You're so wrong. 
we're here because we deserve to be here. Under the rule of the day, the law, we deserve to die. But this man has done no wrong. And he then entreats Jesus, remember me. Remember me. And that's when Jesus spoke those powerful words. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me. We don't even know his name. Nobody recorded it. Nobody remembered it. We know Barabbas. We know that revolutionary man, wicked man. We know Jesus, of course. Thank God we know Jesus. But we don't remember this man's name. There's a story in Genesis chapter 32, and it's a story of a man named Jacob. We know his name. I don't know whether you know what his name means in the Bible, but this man Jacob, he's, he's given this name. It's not a great kind of name that you would give to your kid because it means a schemer or a deceiver. It, it seems like you're setting up your kid to fail there, don't you think? Uh, kids are always coming up with schemes anyway, so you don't want to give them any extra ammunition, do you really? But uh, Jacob is called a schemer and a deceiver. And as the Bible tells the story of this man, Jacob, we see that he really does live up to his name. And, uh, and it's probably no surprise because it seems like his mum's a bit of a schemer and a deceiver as well. And so first of all, they scheme and deceive so that he should get the birthright that should have come to his older brother Esau. And the scheming leads to family breakdown and discord and enmity that rumbles on for many, many years after that. But he schemes also when he's, uh, when he's getting married and scheming against his new in-laws. And there's all sorts of schemes and deceptions that are tied up in this man Jacob's name. And uh, he gets up to all sorts of terrible things. But then on one occasion, uh, an incredible story happens. I just want to read to you just for a moment or two in Genesis chapter 32. And this man Jacob, the Bible says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. I just want to make a point here. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible is approving of it. So if any of you young gentlemen are thinking, two wives, I might do that. No, um, you are not allowed to do that. It's in the Bible, doesn't mean the Bible says it's okay. Okay, so two wives, two female servants, 11 children, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. I love that. It seems to me that maybe his hip has broken, but he says the day has broken. Anyway, let me go. Um, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. We'll leave that there. Now, why on earth, you might ask, am I reading you this story? What on earth does it have to do with Jesus on a cross and a man alongside him asking to be remembered? Well, this story, it's a remarkable story, and theologians and scholars will tell you that actually Jacob's not wrestling with any man, but he's wrestling with God himself. Then as the story goes on, God, he obviously, he dials it down. I wrestle with my boy but I don't give it everything that I've got because 
<laughs> I mean, to be honest, I'm not really good at wrestling, but I've got weight on my side. And uh, if I wasn't careful, I'd take him down. It'd be the same for any of you young gentlemen. You know, you're all in far finer shape than me, but as long as I'm heavier than you and sneakier than you, you're in trouble. Um, but this, this is how it would be. Uh, I don't give it everything. There will come a time with Judah when he gets a bit bigger and a bit stronger. And I won't let on, obviously, but I'll have to try a lot harder. There will come that time in my life where, you know, you've got to be a bit more sneaky. And you might want to cover your ears at this point, Aaron. The little jabs might come out. And, uh, you know, it's going to get a little bit thorny. It's going to, but, you know, I'll still take him down. And, and he will know how things should be. Um, but in this story here, we've got, we've got God himself. And he's coming and he's wrestling with Jacob. Now think about it. If God wants to, not only can he wrestle Jacob to the ground, he could crush him back into being the dust that he once was. So God's clearly accommodating to Jacob and letting him wrestle with him. And it all seems to be to set up a really interesting scenario. And there comes that point where God is like, all right, enough of this. Touches his hip. And that will always speak to him of the fact that he's dependent upon the grace of God. Always, always, always. And he says to him, what is your name? You see, what God is here doing is he's not asking Jacob his name because he knows his name. This is not rocket science, is it? But God knows everything. Tonight, he knows your name. He knew you were going to be here. He knows what's been going on in your life and he knows what's going to go on in your life. He knows everything. God asks him his name. Why? Because God is asking him to make a confession. God is asking him to open up about who he is because tied up in Jacob's name is the fact that not only has he been called a schemer and a deceiver, but he's lived up to it. He's a schemer and a deceiver. And when God says to him, what is your name? God is saying, confess yourself to me. And Jacob confesses himself. He says, I am, I am what I am. I've done what I've done. I'm here, but I'm struggling with you, God. What's the upshot of this? Well, it's a new name. It's a new name. It's a new name that says you've wrestled with God and I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm going to prevail you're going to give it everything you've got and you'll know that it's absolutely intertwined with me as much as arms and legs have been intertwined this one strange night in the middle of nowhere. You'll know that your confession has prompted a change and you'll no longer be called Jacob. Now you will be called Israel. As I think about that thief by the side of Jesus, we don't know his name. But in that moment, he's prompted into a moment of confession. And we can all, you know, kind of come to God and we can want something from Him. We can want a word from God. We can want a word of, of forgiveness, perhaps, want a word of salvation. That's what we're talking about tonight. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're like, God, would you just speak something powerful and profound into my life? But what the Bible teaches me through the experience of that man on a cross next door to Jesus and through the experience of Jacob, the schemer wrestling with God, that no matter how it is and who it is we are as we come towards Jesus, what makes the difference is when we humbly, openly and honestly confess ourselves to God. And we look to him 
with anticipation, with hope, when we're willing to spend the night wrestling with God, but then willing also to say, this is nothing to do with my pride or my ability or who I am. This is all to do with who you are. So I will confess my sins to you, a faithful God, that you might forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. God, give me a new name. Speak over me something better. Those Roman authorities, I don't know whether they had gavels in those days and they put down the hammer when they delivered their sentence, but the last words that were spoken over that man who was to be crucified on the cross were, you are guilty and your sentence is death on the cross. But in that moment of confession when he said to Jesus, I deserve to be here but you don't, please remember me. In that moment, a better word was spoken over him. Actually, you're no longer condemned to death. Now, here is the possibility of paradise for you. Isn't that God's way? To better and even confound our circumstances, our expectations. There's a wonderful little book in the Bible. It's called Lamentations. doesn't sound like it'd be a happy book, does it really? Uh, there's some absolute gold in there. I'd recommend it to you. And in Lamentations chapter 3, the author who is Jeremiah the prophet, and he's, he's wrestling with God because even though he was a faithful and honorable man, the whole nation hadn't been. And so everything had gone horrendously wrong. They'd separated themselves from God. Surprise, surprise, everything fell apart. Jeremiah was wrestling with this. And in the midst of his wrestling, circumstances so terrible around him, how and where will hope come from? And in the middle of that, in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 21, Jeremiah says this. He says, but this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. As God has nails hammered through his hands and his feet. The steadfast love of that God even then doesn't cease. As they rammed a crown of thorns upon his head, the steadfast love of that God still didn't cease. As they hoisted him up to die, his steadfast love didn't cease. As they mocked him, the steadfast love didn't cease. As the criminal called upon him to do the one thing that he couldn't do if he was to save the world, still his steadfast love didn't cease. As he lifted himself up in agony, trying desperately to breathe, his steadfast love did not cease. As he spoke these words of promise over a criminal who didn't deserve them, still his steadfast love didn't cease. As the agony of the sins of the world being placed upon his shoulder took their terrible, terrible toll, still the steadfast love of the Lord didn't cease. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, we can hope this evening. I don't know who you are. Don't know what you've done. Don't know whether you maybe identify a bit with Jacob, maybe even identify with this guy being crucified next to Jesus. I don't know. Truth is, we'd be, we would do well to humbly and honestly look at our lives and see them for what they are. But here, in the midst of the hopelessness of our own righteousness, because it is rubbish, 
In the midst of that hopelessness comes real and genuine hope. Hope in God. But what when hope seems to be disappointed? And that's when we come to the story that we had read for us earlier on. The story of Joseph. Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. That Joseph, you know the guy. And he's found himself in prison. He's another person who's been wrongly accused and thrown into prison. And we see some echoes of the life of Jesus, even in the life of Joseph. And there he is in prison. And there he was with the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. And they, they both have these dreams, don't they? And they sense within these dreams that they're not just dreams. It's not just kind of those fanciful kind of meanderings of our minds as the night goes through. No, they sense that these dreams had some meaning. And when there's some meaning, they desperately want somebody to interpret it. And Joseph, well, they're in luck. Because God has granted him the ability to see the meaning behind what is happening. And so he, he brings the, uh, the revelation for these guys' dreams. There they are, down in the pit. And in three days, they're going to come out. Does that sound like anything to you? Um, in three days' time, there's going to be something that's going to happen remarkable in the experience of these uh, two uh, people. And for one of them, of course, it was that he would be, as it were, resurrected, restored um, to his position. For the other, well, things were going to go from bad to worse. But for that one, who had been restored to his position... Joseph, last words that he says to him is, remember me, remember me when you come back into your position. But he didn't, he didn't. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. And if you were to read on the story in verse 9 of chapter 41 in Genesis, then the chief cupbearer, hearing the dream of Pharaoh, he says, here's what I remember. I remember my offenses today. That's not a bad thing to do. <laughs> I remember that I've got it wrong. I remember that I should have remembered. And the cupbearer had forgotten Joseph. He'd forgotten him. And the hope that Joseph had had seemed to be disappointed. And Joseph, though he foreshadows some of the ministry of Jesus, he isn't Jesus. So he's not the one who remembers others to their salvation. Rather, he asks to be remembered and isn't for such a long time. Have you ever been forgotten? Have you ever been forgotten? Has it ever seemed to be like an eternity's wait for something or for someone or even for God to come through. Did you hear this week of the story of a guy named Tony Folds? Did you hear about this story up in Sheffield? And um, there was a fly past for him, well, kind of for him and kind of for some others. Did you hear about this story? You see, this, this gentleman, if you didn't hear about the story, um, 75 years ago, during the war, he had been out, and, and some, somebody, when they were telling me the story, they said they thought that they were out playing in the fields. When Tony tells the story, actually it was some sort of battle between two rival primary schools, and they were out fighting in the fields. It's not such a pretty story now, is it? But Tony was out there with, with his, his mates from school, and they were out fighting 
in this, in this field. And over above comes this American uh, bomber. And they're in distress. The plane is in distress. It needs to make a landing. And it seems like they've identified this field as a place that they could land. And yet, as the bomber comes down, they become aware of all these lads out in the field. And so, in that moment, they make a decision. We can't land here. Think of the destruction. To Think of what we do to all these kids in the field. And they take a turn, it seemed, to Tony. And they, they ended up crashing into the nearby woods. And, of course, it was the, those poor airmen who came to their end. And Tony, he, he was absolutely blown away by this, that they would sacrifice their lives to save these kids, even kids fighting in a field. And they would do that. And so from, from that day to this, as soon as a memorial was placed for these servicemen who had given their lives, Tony had tended this memorial. Did you hear about this story? And day in and day out, he would make sure that it was well remembered and well looked after. And there was a chance meeting just recently between this guy, Tony, and a reporter from the BBC. And the reporter from the BBC was so moved by the story, he decided that you know, it should be better known. And, and, and this thing kind of snowballed and people got involved. And, and after a little while, on the 75th anniversary, they decided that the US Air Force would organize a fly past. And there, if you saw the picture on the, on the telly, thousands of people gathered in this field with Tony in the place of honor as they did this fly past, thanking this guy, Tony, for tending this memorial. And Tony, he says, he's an old man now, of course, and he says, do you know when the time comes, they, I want them to scatter my ashes at the memorial because what they did for me has so profoundly affected my life that they gave their life to save me, just a little lad in a field. It's a powerful story, isn't it? It's really profoundly moving. But as I heard this story, it got me thinking about remembering. That's what good remembering looks like, isn't it? You know, for somebody to give 75 years to remembering that moment when somebody gave their all for him, that's an incredible thing of, of, of remembering. And it got me to thinking about all the times that we don't really remember well. Those times that we, like this chief cupbearer, have had everything done for us, and yet we just go about our business as though nothing has happened. Not so for Tony. He remembered. He remembered. He remembered. And the cupbearer, I remember my offense today. Joseph's brought out of the prison and interprets Pharaoh's dream and is restored to his rightful position in society. When hope seems to be lost, remembering what really matters, remembering what is significant, is what really makes the difference. I want to say to you this evening, God, he doesn't forget us. He doesn't forget us. But he does forget our sins. If we receive the forgiveness of God for our sins, the Bible says in Jeremiah 31 that he will remember it no more. Sin can be forgotten in the saving work of Jesus. And 
we can start to remember what he has done for us. Do this in remembrance of me. Just as profoundly as for that man being crucified next to Jesus. If we say to our God, would you remember me? Then he will. But he invites us into that moment of response. He invites us into a moment of response that we get to remember him also. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to come now. And those who are leading us in worship will do so. And those who are preparing the bread and the wine will do so also. And we're going to remember Jesus. We're going to remember him. That in his death for us, his love never ceases. And his mercy never comes to an end. He's not like us. We normally forget so many things that are important. And it's when we hear about people like Tony Folds up near Sheffield that we're, we're prompted by an astounding act of remembrance because it's quite rare. God is not like us. He doesn't forget. He doesn't think about us from time to time. He doesn't make promises that he won't keep. He's faithful. He's true. He's just. We can believe because Jesus said it that that criminal crucified that day because he placed his trust in Jesus is with Jesus in paradise. We can believe that that is true. We can believe also for ourselves. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus, the same night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he broke it, he offered it to his disciples and told them, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat of it. The Bible tells us that after supper, he took the cup in the same way. And he told them, this is the new covenant, the new promise relationship in my blood. Drink all of it. Paul the Apostle goes on to add that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember, we remember, we remember Jesus' death. We remember how Jesus spoke a word of salvation from the cross to somebody who, well, had no right to expect it, didn't deserve it. We remember how Jesus speaks that same word of hope, that same word of salvation over our lives if we'll only listen to him. We'll remember how hope in God doesn't disappoint. We remember how his steadfast love does not cease, how his mercies are new. We remember how his grace is sufficient for us. We remember how he takes us from a place of the brokenness of our past and he gives us a new name and he gives us a new day and he gives us a new hope. We remember how he doesn't forget us in our brokenness. He doesn't forget us in the, the dungeons of our own sinfulness. Rather, he remembers us and rescues us and brings us out and brings us forth and brings us into his glory and his grace. And broken bread speaks that to us tonight. And a cup speaks that to us tonight. We remember Jesus' 
died. And we remember that he died in our place. We remember that he died. And we remember that that death pays the price for all of our sin. We remember that he died and that death led him to a resurrection. And that resurrection leads to new life that you and I can also rise to newness in him. Will you remember Jesus tonight? Will you remember him? Will you remember him? I wonder this evening, would you close your eyes perhaps? And